This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspectives. That it is. Maybe. Recording <laughs> on a Sunday night. We've got our, our Sunday night wine in hand. Uh, I do feel needed. like... Different times of day and different days of recording produce different results. I haven't done any like scientific experiments on this yet. Like (laughs) I haven't like run this through like the scientific method to see if it's true or not. But I just feel like that's true. Mm. Like the vibes on a Sunday night are different than like a Thursday night. Yeah, because we're not. I mean, well, it's weird because for me, Sunday night is my Friday night. So, oh, yeah. So you're in party mode and yeah, I'm I mean, in like getting of. back to work mode. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have to work until I don't I have to pick up the little one at three tomorrow. So I have all morning tomorrow to take care of life and other things. So I'm like, you know what? I'm OK. Thursday nights, I'm usually like, oh, my God, I'm just going to like work for three days straight yeah. after this. Great. <laughs> yeah. Thursday nights are like a, a real slog. Like you're like, OK, we're almost for me. I'm like I'm almost to the weekend, but I'm still not like I still have to like work tomorrow. Yeah, so. total like weird side story or whatever. I always have preferred Thursdays. I don't know why. There's something like I remember well, like in general, all, like it's your favorite day. Yeah, when I oh. was like, or at least like of the weekday. I remember being in high school. Grey's Anatomy came out on Thursday, so that was a big thing. But it was also that um, it was like tomorrow's Friday, which is leading into the weekend. And Friday, Saturday, and Sunday were always a letdown to me because it was like, well, we're in it. It's going to be over soon. Thursday, it was like the anticipation of like tomorrow and tomorrow night and whatever. I don't know why. Thursday was just always a good day for me. And then I always had, Thursday was my one day off for years. I never had weekends. It was just Thursday. That's why you like it. That's probably why as well. It's been ingrained in you deeply because, I mean, for me, I think boring my favorite day of the week is probably Saturday it's like it is the only day because it's like Friday yeah you get to party after work but you still have to work and yeah. then like Sunday you have like, to okay, recover you have day off, but you have yeah. to go to work tomorrow but none of this actually even matters because I work all weekend I mean that's so the thing like, I was like I can't remember when I've like not had to work weekends since I was like in college I've always had to work weekends yeah I work at this point between like all the projects I work seven oh, days yeah. a week so it's I was just, gonna like, say not even we both work seven days exactly. a week nonstop. Yeah. like a day off means that I like don't have to do the worst jobs you know what I yes. mean I'm like yeah <laughs> it means like t- today is a day off and I recorded earlier with my worst date and I'm right. recording with you tonight so it's like it's work but at least it's like fun work. It's, it's your own work. Yeah. It's of your own choice. You know, yes. all that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah. Well, we are going to do a feminist faves this week. And I knew exactly who I wanted to do right away because I actually texted you probably a couple months ago now. But it was around the time that, uh, well, whenever Roe was overturned uh-huh. and there was a whole other another insurgence of the song You Don't Own Me. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. I was very curious about the singer, Leslie Gore. I've got a few of her songs in my Spotify, like It's My Party, I'll Cry If I Want To, and uh, Sometimes I Wish I Were a Boy, and some of those songs. So I was like, I wonder who this person is and like how she felt about that song. And even just the littlest bit that I learned about her, I was like, why is she not more well-known? So I did a little bit of digging. There's unfortunately not like a huge wealth of information on her, but over probably 15 different articles, I was able to compile a little bit of a biography about Isn't her. Isn't that interesting how somebody who can have these like massive hits that not only still get played, but are also like very consistently in 
pop culture. Like I just rewatched the first Wives Club. Yep. And of course, like that is very prominently featured there. And like I remember when I was a kid, It's My Party, I Can Cry If I Want To. It was Every, like... Every like party song. Yeah, and, it was yeah. played all the time. And so it's so fascinating that somebody can have, can leave that kind of cultural footprint and not have a bunch of shit written about them. Yeah. Isn't that well, interesting? it's interesting there. And there might be some reasoning behind that as we learn about hers. Because it's, it's interesting. So let's get into... Ms. Leslie Gore. So Leslie was born Leslie Sue Goldstein on May 2nd, 1946 in Brooklyn, New York to a middle class Jewish family. The family later changed their last name shortly after Leslie was born to Gore to try to avoid some anti-Semitism. That's so sad. I hate it that people had to do that, you know, because it's just like it's a connection to your roots and your ancestors. And like that's such a bummer. It is. They then moved to New Jersey, and Leslie grew up in a town called Tenafly. When she was 16 years old in 1963, her vocal coach recorded a demo for her, which somehow made its way to Quincy fucking Jones. So at the time, Quincy wasn't this like legend that he is now. He wasn't even that well known in the music industry. He was working at A&R and Mercury Records and was just kind of like one of their producers, but it was actually his partnership with Leslie that jumpstarted his career as well, which is really cool. So together they recorded the song It's My Party and I'll Cry If I Want To when she was just a junior in high school. It quickly became number one nationwide and the record was so popular it reached gold status. Leslie went from an unknown antenna fly to hordes of fans in her long calling her name. Because I guess like on the radio they were like the little girl from antenna fly, New Jersey. Wow. So they would just show up on her lawn and she was like, what do I do? So it, it truly was as close as you can get to like overnight success. Yeah, I didn't know? I didn't write this down. But like so there was another girl group called the Crystals that were also really big at the time. Mm-hmm. And they were also going to record It's My Party and I'll Cry If I Want To. But Quincy Jones was like, if we just push it to the radio, she'll get there first. Yep. So it was something like April 6th, she recorded it. By April 12th, it was on the radio. It's wild to me how much things have changed. I mean, I guess you can still do something similar to that in that like now people just put their stuff up on like TikTok right. and like wait for it to go viral and get discovered that way. But like the fact that you could kind of just like pay a DJ to put your thing on the radio back yeah. then, you know. Essentially, yeah, that's what happened. And like I said, Quincy Jones's star also rose because of this and he became the first black VP of Mercury Records with the success of this album. And after that, the two became good friends and Quincy became one of Leslie's mentors and friends. Also in 1963, she was approached by songwriters John Madeira and David White with the song, You Don't Own Me. So these are two male writers, which is interesting because we think of You Don't Own Me as being this like feminist anthem, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And so I actually was just reading about this while I was eating my dinner before coming in. But I guess um, John Madeira was mixed race and he grew up in a mixed um, area of Philadelphia where he experienced a lot of racism Mm -hmm. and especially seeing through colorism how what he described as his black friends Mm -hmm. being, you know, locked up, treated terribly and then also experiencing a lot of racism himself. He wrote, you don't own me as a way, yes, for like a young woman to be able to stand up for herself because these men were like, there's all these like songs about women singing, oh, I wish I could have him instead of realizing their own worth. Mm -hmm. But they also wrote it as like a song just for humans in general to kind of be like, you don't own me. You don't get to tell me what to say or how to live my life. Yeah. And so I found it interesting that there were some ties to like the civil rights movement in there as well, which is really interesting. Yeah, I think it really speaks to how your form of oppression can be different and varied, but at the end of the day, it is all so similar because that anthem can also be applied to like LGBTQ rights. Like, you know, it's, it can be applied to a lot of things. Exactly. And that was something that she really was drawn to about the song when it was first played to her. She said that she thought the song had an important humanist quality. She said it was, quote, shocking in 1963 for its anti-patriarchal stance showing the power of one woman to deny the wishes of a man. 
This song was also a success. It was actually sandwiched between two Beatles songs <laughs> for a number of weeks. It was between like I Want to Hold Your Hand was number one and then I think A Hard Day's Night was number three and then You Don't Own Me was right wow. in between, which is weird Huge. to think about, right? Especially for like a young girl in the 60s. Imagine that yeah. feeling of like being sandwiched by the Beatles exactly. on the charts. And she's probably like, I want to date them. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is she talks a lot about how, and I have a quote written down somewhere in my notes, but she does talk about what it was like to be a young woman in the music industry at this time and how, you know, she was like, I I wouldn't say that they didn't want me to have any success, but I was definitely placed on a lower rung. Mm -hmm. You know, she was very aware, especially with her age, I think, to see that she didn't have the same amount of power as the men around her in the music industry did. I also found it was interesting with the song coming out in 1963 because she kind of talks about how it was around the time the second wave started picking up again. So I kind of Googled where it connects with the second wave. And 1963 was actually the same year that The Feminine Mystique was published. Okay. And it was the same year as the Equal Pay Act. So it was kind of also a like perfect timing situation as well. Like yeah. that song came out and it coincided exactly perfectly with all these other cultural things that were happening. Totally. Yeah, that's great. I it mean, I, great. it's kind of like... <laughs> Great feels like a weird thing to say. <laughs> Didn't mean it like that. I just meant like that. Well, but it is like you have more media yeah. around you that's supporting this new change in the world or yeah. whatever. And in that way, I think it is great. <laughs> so in 1964, she came out with another song called Sometimes I Wish I Were a Boy, which in my opinion is another very like coded feminist song of a woman who wishes she had the same power and control as the men around her. It actually kind of reminds me of like a 1960s version of Beyonce's If I, if were, I were a Boy. boy. I was going to say it sounds very similar to yeah, that. Yeah, mm-hmm. very much so. In a lot of her songs, Leslie was a bratty teen, but also a strong, assertive woman all at once. And she kind of had this, like, because she was this young teenager, blonde, blue-eyed, she had this very, like, innocent, all-American look to her. Mm -hmm. But she was whiny and complained, or she was very, like, sure of herself in a lot of her songs and Mm -hmm. was okay with kind of, like, being emotional. Well, she's a teenage girl, you know, and I'm like, I feel like that's appropriate for her age group and yes her voice also does just naturally kind of have that like a little bit of a whiny quality yeah yeah yeah. though she was finding such success in the music industry she thought that it was an unreliable career career choice so she decided to study literature at sarah lawrence college um wow maturity hello because me as a teenager i would have been like i'm gonna be a movie star that was literally me as a teenager it was me too and i'm like (laughs) so if i had success if i was on the charts between two beatles songs i would have been like i don't need to secure anything else for my future (laughs) i'm good but i love that she went to sarah lawrence i mean sarah lawrence has such an amazing history in feminism because it was an all-girls school for so long um, it actually wouldn't become a co-ed school until 1968. So when Leslie first started, at least, it was still all women. And she did grow up going to all-girls schools as well. But she says about Sarah Lawrence that they treat women like human beings. It felt really good to feel good about being a woman. And Sarah Lawrence had a lot to do with helping me feel that way. She said that she wasn't, like, the fame didn't really translate to Sarah Lawrence either because everyone was super into, like, folk music and mm-hmm. like a little and bit more academia yeah exactly yeah. and she was this like pop singer you know what I mean so she was like no I was not popular in college like they did not really care what I did you know which is great it's not like um might have been a bit of a relief really yeah, yeah. well I mean I think about Emma Watson when she went to Brown people would be like Guardian Leviosa at her and like that would be so annoying But while she was in school, she did continue promoting and making new music, but she had stipulated that she would only do so if there was breaks from schools or holidays or over summer vacation. So she would do tours and be on TV shows and things like that, but she would never let it get in the way of her studies, which I think is amazing and something I would never do. (laughs) Same. Yeah, exactly. And I I think that it is amazing, especially because she was so young. Exactly. And to like have a good head on her shoulders is not something I can relate to. When she was in college, she also volunteered for Bobby Kennedy's presidential campaign. On working for Kennedy, she said, I have to say that when I first started singing, I didn't think it was a very noble profession. I worked for people like Robert Kennedy, and I thought, wow, that's what it's about. That's how you change the world. And then I watched this disintegrate in front of my eyes, and it was very discouraging. As you all should know, Bobby Mm -hmm. Kennedy was assassinated. Okay. (laughs) 
Yeah, um, I mean, and of course, like that assassination also co- coincided with the assassination of Martin Luther, Martin Luther King, King Jr. and and uh, it was kind Malcolm of like the and, death of all this hope. Yeah, because those were three people that were kind of like giving everyone hope into the next you know, yeah. four years that or generation or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And then yeah. when those three men were killed, it kind of was this like, what the fuck is going to happen now mm-hmm. for a lot of these social issues. So being out on her own and studying at Sarah Lawrence made Leslie feel much more political, but there was something else deep inside of her that led her to stand up for others. And that is Leslie was a lesbian. <laughs> She had dated both boys and girls growing up and stated that her first serious relationship was with a woman, which helped her discover her sexual identity. When she was 20 years old, she met a woman named Lois Sasson, and the two started a relationship. Uh, and spoiler alert, they're together for the rest of her life, essentially. Oh. They broke up for a few years in there when she moved to California, but they met in like 1968 and were together for the rest of Leslie's life. So it's pretty amazing. At some point during this time, she also made friends with Bella Abzug, who we've talked about quite a few times, and she became an even closer mentor to her than Quincy Jones. On Bella, Leslie says, she's kind of mentored me as to what's important for women and where to put my energies in terms of gay women and what I could do best to help women in our community and children. And that's pretty much what I live by now, pretty much where I like to concentrate my efforts. You can only bite off so much, so you got to know what you want to do. And I love that. You can only bite off so much, so you've wow, got Leslie. to know what to do. I, I know like she's really like telling us right now. Called out right now. Um, <laughs> what, I felt that way, but I thought it was a great thing. What do you mean you can only <laughs> do so much? <laughs> I can do everything. What do you mean? No, she's far more uh, practical and it, mature than I've ever been in my whole life. I mean, yeah. Yeah, me too. Feminism then quickly began to be a very important part of her life in her career and personal life. She says, as I got older, feminism became more a part of my life and more a part of my whole awareness. And I could see why people would use you don't own me as a feminist anthem. I don't care what age you are, whether you're 16 or 116, there's nothing more wonderful than standing on stage and shaking your finger and singing, don't tell me what to do. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think anyone would have assumed at the time that the teen behind most heteronormative songs would be a feminist lesbian. Leslie became known as the teenage voice of heartbreak and the queen of teen angst, which was not equated to gayness at the time. <laughs> Leslie never really officially came out during this time at all, but she also didn't go out of her way to hide herself or her relationship with Lois. One article claims that it was easier for Leslie to let the public assume who she was rather than risk her career and future. One of her biographers also claims that an anonymous letter was sent to her parents in 1970, which outed her to them, and she didn't deny the letter. Like, someone saw her leaving a gay bar and tattled on her to her parents. Imagine caring about somebody's personal life to that degree. I can't. This is totally something my family would do. They would, like, text my mom and be like, I saw Madigan doing this. That, to me... Well, that to me is just like a whole different level of Mm -hmm. just, like, caring about somebody else's business. Like, I would never... Because it's not like you just ran into them in the grocery store and you're like, oh, by the way, it's like you took the time. And why were you by the gay bar? (laughs) What were you doing over there that you saw her leaving? Hmm? Hmm? Yeah, you got to you used a stamp for that. You know what I mean? You Uh, paid money. You wasted money on a stamp unless they just like dropped it in the mailbox. But whatever. I don't know. Uh, When she talked about never coming out, she said, I never found it was necessary I really never kept my life private. Those who knew me, those who worked with me, were all aware. She also explained in interviews that she was very aware of how, quote, totally homophobic the music industry was, and on top of that, how strong the patriarchy was. Quote, it's always been a patriarchal situation, and it always puts women not necessarily down, but certainly on a lower rung. So that's what I was mentioning earlier, Mm -hmm. where she was very aware of the patriarchal systems in place in the music industry and how, you know, she felt like she was never really able to reach her full potential as well. She was dropped by Mercury at the end of the 60s, and this wasn't for any like real reason. She had a five-year contract. They did extend it for another year, but she wasn't making as much music, wasn't making as much money. It also doesn't sound like this was really her priority. I mean, yeah. it seems like something that she cared about and enjoyed, but it doesn't sound like this was like she was going to make this her thing, you know? I mean, it's one of those things where it's like she did it a lot, but especially during this time, she was singing songs that were written for her. Mm -hmm. Uh, She was on one of the early uh, Batman shows, 
Mm -hmm. She like acted a little bit and she did it like American Bandstand and like all these TV shows and stuff. But it does kind of seem like she wasn't as like personally involved in a lot of it because she had college working for Robert Kennedy all this other stuff going on and it sounded like her career was mostly being managed by other people so in large part they were probably you know kind of telling her like oh hey we got you this gig on Batman exactly show up at this time here's your line show up at this time kind of thing rather than a lot of people in the industry are doing a lot of the footwork themselves because they're very ambitious in that way where it sounds like she had a lot of other things that were probably more important to her. Yeah. You know, so it doesn't sound like there was any real love lost with her like no. stepping away or and whatever. And I think it actually gave her more freedom because it was after she left Mercury Records that she started deciding that she wanted to get better at songwriting herself. Nice. And so she moved to California in 1970. This is when she took her little break from Lois. And she started really studying how to be a songwriter and just sat in front of the piano every day and really worked hard on it. She also had one brother named Michael who was becoming a composer at the time. So they were like a very musical duo and helped each other a lot. And she really found a love for songwriting. And I would assume that finally starting to sing your own words would also mean a lot more. She would just never have the same success with these albums as she did with her first albums with Mercury Records. She released an album of her own songs with lyricist Ellen Weston in 1972 entitled Love Me By Name. She also worked with her brother, like I mentioned, and the two did music for the movie Fame in 1980. And That's really cool. I didn't know that. He wrote fame the brother wrote the song remember my name yeah and he won the oscar for it okay i was gonna say michael gore sounds very familiar yes to me. yeah i wonder if it, it that's as her I brother it up through osmosis from being in like musical theater or something but yeah that's that's very cool she was also very into musical theater as well and i'll get into that but um yeah so they they worked on the music for that movie together they were both nominated for their song out here on my own but her oh, brother I won that song. do you she I love that it. song. I didn't know she wrote that song. <laughs> she sure did. Um, yeah, and then her brother won an Academy Award for the song Fame. Super awesome. After that, she moved back to New York City and reconnected with Lois. Back in New York, she sang her oldies around clubs and also performed on Broadway in a production of Smokey Joe's Cafe. Okay, yeah, I'm, f- I'm familiar. Are you? I don't know Smokey Joe's Cafe. <laughs> yeah, I like it. <laughs> All right, cool. Yeah, we thought about doing it with my nonprofit. We were considering doing that Ooh. next year. We're not going to, but That's yeah. really cool. Yeah, I've never heard cool. of it. I must have to look into it. So like I said, uh, she and Lois would remain together for the rest of Leslie's life, but Leslie was always very indifferent to marriage, and I wonder if this had a lot to do with the marriage laws at the mm-hmm. time and how she was seen, because Lois has stated after Leslie passed away that they had planned on getting married that fall. Oh. I know. Leslie dedicated much of the rest of her life to the causes she and Lois cared about. Lois was a luxury jewelry designer, but also like really big in feminist circles as well. So the two of them um, kind of became this, this fighting pair. She stepped away from music for the most part from 1982 to 2005. In 2003, she hosted episodes of the PBS series In the Life, which focused on LGBTQ issues. And this was kind of Leslie's way of coming out. So the show, um, I've heard of it and I kind of remember mm-hmm. it a little yeah, bit, yeah. but it was all, every episode was about LGBTQ causes and she would host these episodes and that was kind of her way of coming forward as being gay. I love PBS so much. So good. So educational. Mm-hmm. In 2005, she released a comeback album entitled Ever Since, which was raved by critics. In 2012, she released her song, You Don't Own Me, as a PSA, as a way to get women out to vote with other celebrities, mouthing the lyrics. In 2014 or 15, after an extensive tour, Leslie was experiencing back pain. She received an MRI, which showed lung cancer, probably from heavy smoking for so many years. She died shortly after her diagnosis on February 16th, 2015, at the age of 68. She was survived by her partner, Lois, of 33 years, her brother, and her cocker spaniel named Little Billy, named for Billy oh. Holiday. Oh. On the choice of the dog name, she once told Ellen DeGeneres in an interview, I thought, you know, a little gender confusion makes a better person. I love it. I love it so uh, much. Also, not the point of anything, but just because I have the opportunity to say it now, stop smoking. <laughs> You're looking right at me when you say that. <laughs> I, sorry, I wasn't really directing it at you. But like, is, stop smoking, everybody. Like, 
I, my husband smokes, like a lot of my friends smoke, but my grandma died of lung cancer. And I feel like, and as somebody who's probably similar to Leslie Gore's age, yeah, I just feel like it's like dominoes, like so many people of that age, because they all started smoking when they were like 14 I in know. like the late forties or fifties, you know, like, a, I mean, my mom quit smoking around when I was born. She was still a kind of a social smoker after I was born. But my mom started smoking real young. Yeah, like so when did you can my get them grandma. out of like coin machines. Yeah. You know, my like, grandma I think seriously started smoking when she was like fourteen or fifteen. Yeah, and my mom too. Like, yeah, and smoked chain smoked until yeah. like a few years before her death, and she did finally quit, like because she could see it wasn't good for her health. Yeah, but by then it was just like there was too much damage. But I'm just it's like so hard. Doesn't have to be this way. It's we don't so, have to lose people like this. You don't. But I mean, God, and I I've quit before, so I'm coming from a person who did it for like I quit for like five years, did not go near any sort of nicotine, went through a bad breakup thought I could maybe just be a social smoker didn't work for me it is the hardest thing no I know to give up I it know is it is so hard and my mm-hmm. mom always described it as like it was like a breakup oh yeah I like don't, she was mourning it <laughs> I don't judge people like I said like so many of my friends are smokers and I really don't bring it up very often unless something comes up right. about it but like I really it's don't bring so it up very hard. often because I know how difficult it is but since and I they had the know upper, it too they know it too yeah. yeah and I've seen you know I've seen Anthony quit and get back to it and, and quit and like cut down and you know I've seen all of that happen so like I know it's not easy it's just we had the opportunity to talk don't about start. it don't start just don't don't start, start smoking like don't do it yeah. it's a trap um so as far as celebrities go Leslie died broke so we were saying how mature she was not good with money mm-hmm. she was not a money person um she even said in an interview that she couldn't retire she still had to work yeah. to make enough money to survive um after her death lois said of leslie she was a wonderful human being caring giving a great feminist great woman great human being great humanitarian her new york times obituary stated with songs like it's my party judy's turn to cry and the indelibly defiant 1964 single you don't own me all recorded before she was 18, Gore made herself the voice of teenage girls aggrieved from fickle boyfriends, moving quickly from tearful self-pity to fierce self-assertion. Lois unfortunately passed away as a result of COVID-19 on oh. December 30th, 2020, which oh, just... Oh, that's so sad. I know, it just broke my heart when I read that. Before her death, Leslie was working on an autobiography and an autobiographical musical. All of her papers and photos are now available to the public at the New York Public Library for the Performing Arts as of 2022. After her death, her old friend Quincy partnered up with the Australian songstress Grace, featuring g Easy to record Leslie's song, You Don't Own Me. Grace was the same age, 17, as Leslie was when she first recorded the song for Quincy. Wow. And that's the story of Leslie Gore. Yeah, I didn't know a lot of that. I, I think when you sent me that article I was like she's a lesbian (laughs) I I had no idea yeah that she was a lesbian no you know and it it, again it's so interesting that somebody whose music and voice is so embedded in all of our brains because from a very young age we've just heard these songs yeah to know virtually nothing about the person who made these songs popular yeah I'm like man I wish I lived in New York because I would love to I guess it's like her unfinished autobiography you can read it it's in the New York Public Library oh wow yeah I would love to and the musical too if you want to look at the musical then I guess we should just make a trip to New York I guess we're gonna have to to twist my arm honestly like whenever I hear about people who will like go to the libraries in New York I, I would just spend like a day I would spend a week just going through all of the old like papers and stuff that mm-hmm. they have there is there anything like that in LA I'm sure there's gotta be there's a re- like the really big library is downtown yeah in Los Angeles but I don't know like if, if they have anything really cool there yeah, it's like, a very cool building take me to the archives yeah. <laughs> I want to mm-hmm. see everything microfiche <laughs> I love it all right well that's all I got for you should we take a quick break before we get on to your story yeah let's do it let's do it Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. 
Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free, and when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. And we're back. Okay, so my person, I actually feel like as you were telling your story, I was like, oh, there's a parallel. Oh, there's a parallel. I love when this happens. Yeah, sometimes this happens. So I am going to be talking about Hedy Lamarr. (gasps) Oh, my. Wait, I almost did Hedy Lamarr like Three weeks ago. Did you ever read or know about the book, The Only Woman in the Room? No. It is like based on her life and her marriage with the uh-huh. Nazi Yeah, Fritz guy. Mandel. Yeah. yeah. There's yeah. some interesting... She's fascinating. It's, her life is fascinating. Yes. It really is. And again, I feel like this is a person who... For me, as somebody, I think I had I had pictures of Hedy Lamarr on my wall because I had yeah. an entire like wall collage of just like golden age um, actors, stars, and actresses. yeah, yeah. Like, and so I, I definitely had like pictures of her on my wall growing up because I was so fascinated yeah. um, by this time period. I was so fascinated. Well, she's with, around the same time as Judy. I knew all about yeah, Hedy yeah. and all that, you know. And um, I was so fascinated with film just in general that like the history of film and the studio culture and all of that stuff was really fascinating to me. Um, And I still didn't know so much about her personal life. Her personal life is insane. And I did want to say something really quick. So I knew a German woman whose daughter's name was Hedy, named after Hedy Lamarr. So I've heard it pronounced two ways. I've always said Hedy. I feel like everyone in the U.S. always says Hedy. Yeah. But the German people I've met call her Hedy Lamarr. Yeah. Well, I mean, because her name was Hedwig. Yeah. So Because that was this little girl's name, too. She's mm-hmm. Hedwig, and they called her Hedy. Yeah. Yeah. Everything that I saw, because I did watch some videos, I think because when she changed her name, well, she didn't even decide to change her name, but like when the name was changed, it was changed by... Um, like studio execs at MGM. So it was how they wanted to pronounce right. it. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. I love this because like I actually like know about her. Mm-hmm. Highly recommend The Only Woman in the Room, but it is like when I looked at her real biography and then after it's a reading fictionalized the book, account, right? It's fictionalized, yeah. but it's really, really good. I highly recommend it still. Awesome. Good historical fiction. Awesome. Okay, so Hedy Lamarr was once called the most beautiful woman in Hollywood during its golden age. And she is another person who it actually struck me because we were just talking about Jennifer's body uh, that like Megan Fox is one of those people who is so beautiful. It's like painful to look at them in that movie, especially Hedy Lamarr is very similar to me. Like she's especially in those like she's got one that's a very iconic picture of her where she's got this like beautiful celestial headdress on stars. And in that picture, she is so incredibly stunning. She's very goddess like in a lot of ways. And I feel like she truly embodied the look of that era in like the Hollywood golden age. And she influenced the look of that era. Very much did. But Mm -hmm. like when you think of it like that's like she just had like perfect skin, cute little nose, beautiful smile. She was gorgeous. Yes. Yes. Beautiful. Uh, I mean, and that's something that later on in her life, she would comment a lot on and not always in a positive way, which made me very sad for her. But well, I think that, and I'm sure you're going to talk about it. Like I think that her beauty determined a lot of choices that were made for her in her yeah. life as oh, yeah. well. Definitely. So it is kind of a it's hindrance a, to her choices, I feel like. It was like, a blessing a and a curse, yeah. I think. It was very, very much like a two-sided coin for her. I'm so excited. Yeah. Tell me. 
So she was born Hedwig Kistler on November 9th, 1914 in Vienna, Austria. She grew up in a wealthy Jewish community in Vienna. Her parents were very invested in giving her a well-rounded education. Her mother in particular wanted to make sure that she was exposed to arts and introduced her to classical music and theater at a young age. They enrolled their daughter in the Doblinger Middle School, which was one of the best schools in the country, where Sigmund Freud's daughter, Anna Freud, was employed as a teacher. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, and her parents, it does seem like at a time, she was born in 1914, so like at a time when a lot of parents were not very invested in the education of their daughters. I was going to say of young girls, it really wasn't that important. Yeah. And both of her parents, you know, her mom was very invested in making sure she had a well-rounded arts education and her father um, really let her explore her, um, really allowed her to explore her interest in science, yeah. which was, was very cool. Yeah. Cause she if liked- I remember correctly from the book, it seems like she and her father had a really close bond. I mean, it would seem that way uh, because she really enjoyed and had a knack for taking things apart and putting them back together again. Yeah. Uh, which is, it takes a certain kind of like engineering scientific mind to be able to do that. So Not my brain. She would spend a lot of time doing this with her dad and her father found this like delightful that she had this interest uh, and encouraged her and spent a lot of time doing it with her. So, I, I mean, I would think that that sounds like a father who's very interested in his daughter's interests. Yeah, and I think that it's a very, it, it, it's a difference than I think a lot of other fathers uh-huh. would. Who were largely absent in this time period. Like, we're like, it's not my responsibility to take care of my kids. or just straight up, we're like, we're not doing this. I mean, this is long before, but um, in the book, The Invention of Wings, with uh-huh. the Grimke sisters, yeah, yeah. one of them really wanted to be a lawyer, and their father was a lawyer, and so she would, like, read all of his books and stuff, and then once she hit a certain age, he was like, you're done, you're good, you don't need to know anymore, you're never going to become a lawyer, you're a woman. And so I think that there's kind of this, like, that's weird at the time that a father would acknowledge and strengthen their daughter's intelligence. Right. Is lovely. And he seemed to be like truly like delighted in the fact that she liked to do this thing, you know, wouldn't you want your kids to be smart? Like, come on. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, if I saw my kid like taking apart an engine and putting it back together, I'd be like, Oh my God, (laughs) like you're a genius. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Hetty's beauty was also not lost on her from an early age. So she's, I don't know that she ever, well, IQs are faulty anyway. Like that, that whole thing is, is a flawed system, but I don't know if she ever had her IQ tested or had any kind of tests like that, but I would imagine that her IQ was pretty high. She seems like an incredibly logical human being. Yeah. Yeah. And I do think that the fact that she, from a very young age, was like, I'm beautiful. There's no use denying the fact that I'm beautiful and I can use this to leverage something for my future. She knew it from a pretty early age. Pretty privilege. Mm-hmm. She understood... Um, that she could use it as a bargaining chip in society. She wanted to start entering into beauty pageants in her early adolescence, but her parents did not see this as a viable path for their daughter and actively discouraged it. So that is one thing. It does seem like, but I feel like that came from wanting the best for their daughter. And they were like, you're so smart. Why do you want these other things? The way that I look at it is like, if your kid shows an interest, I mean, beauty pageants, We've had episodes about it, too, and how, like... uh, But I think it was also another way for her to go somewhere in life. Like, I don't know about how beauty pageants were back then, but, like, it does open a lot of doors for people to do more with their lives. So I guess that it is a good way for her to get out there. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So when the death of one of Hetty's grandmothers happened to coincide with a beauty pageant in the area, she took advantage of her parents' distraction to secretly enter, and at the age of 12, she won. So again, she's like, they're not looking. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm 12, but I'll do Mm -hmm. this by myself anyways. Mm -hmm. Her parents, upset with their daughter's deceit, sent her to live at a Swiss boarding school, but Hetty wasn't having it. She had friends phone the school pretending to be her father and demanded that she be returned home. (laughs) It worked, and Hetty returned to Vienna, where she promptly entered into another beauty pageant. (laughs) Can you imagine, like, I sent my daughter to school, she's going to be gone until Christmas break, She shows and then she just walks in the door, Uh hi! Yeah, Yeah, no, she's she's very smart and headstrong. I was going to say, very ballsy. And stubborn, yeah. Yeah. As she entered her teens, she 
She soon began dating and signed herself up for acting classes. Soon she was dating a fellow actor and working as a script clerk at a film studio in Austria. She was doing all this as a teenager when she should have been attending school, but Hetty, never one to be deterred, forged a note in her mother's name excusing her early from class so that she could get to her job in the studio and attend her acting classes. So she was just like, she's lying, 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 lying. <laughs> lying everywhere. This would mm-hmm. never work now. No, 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 no. This would never work. No. <laughs> While working as a script clerk, she was notified that a secretary part was available in an upcoming movie. Unannounced, she attended the audition and told the director that she wanted the part. She got it and soon appeared in her first film role in Gold on the Street in 1930. I wish it worked like that. Mm-hmm. Well, it does, if you look, <laughs> it does if you look like Hedy Lamar. I mean, I think, yeah. You know, like <laughs> uh, tomorrow, I'm just going to walk into a casting director and just be like, cast me in this. Thank you. I would like this role, please. Yeah. Her small performance, which was really more about her looks, got the attention of legendary Golden Age Hollywood producer Max Reinhardt, who cast her in a tiny part in a play called The Weaker Sex. Even though it was a nothing part, Reinhardt was so taken by Hetty that he couldn't stop talking about her all around town and told a group of reporters, Hetty Kessler is the most beautiful woman in the world. A quote that was soon picked up and by October of 1931, film roles were rolling in for Hetty, who soon moved to Berlin to be closer to film production. Funnily enough, even though she was called the most beautiful woman in the world, this is the first time it happened, and then, of course, it would happen again later in in her life, in her career, she started her career portraying mostly, like, sweet, naive, unglamorous women. Like, if you see kind of clips from her early like acting career uh-huh. they downplayed her beauty like interesting they, they definitely she is known for having that big glamorous 1940s hairstyle they yeah. like was a lot closer to the head like her makeup was a lot more subtle and she was younger too so right well and if she wasn't in a lead role they didn't want her to outshine oversh- yeah to outshine the star you mm-hmm. know they were like we got to make you a little uglier so you don't yeah look so good as our star In 1932, sensing the ever-rising threat of the Nazi party, Hedy left Berlin and returned to Vienna, where she was cast in a controversial film called Ecstasy. Oh, was it ever. Yeah. (laughs) So in Ecstasy, Hedy plays a young woman who has left her impotent older husband and meets a younger man with whom she falls in love and has an affair. All of this already is like, you're talking about impotency, you're talking, like, it's scandalous already. And this is what year again? It's like in the 50s, right? Oh, no, 1932. 1930? Oh, yeah, yeah. that's right. I don't yes, know what I was yeah. thinking. This is very early mm-hmm, on. Mm-hmm. The film features a nude swimming sequence, although you don't see anything. It's, you know, close up on her face, but it, she's supposed to be You nude. can tell that she's nude, mm-hmm. yeah. And a close up on Hetty's face during orgasm, which was an absolute scandal when the film came out in 19. 19- 33 as you can imagine yeah and she and I'm sure you're gonna get into this but like she was kind of blacklisted a little bit like I think that she was still desirable to other like casting directors and things like that but at least in the book it kind of starts with like a play that she did right after ecstasy and how people like look at her differently because she's now this like sex symbol instead of this like pure woman I don't think that she was blacklisted I know that the film was not released in the United States it didn't have a wide release worldwide because of the content um the pope condemned the movie like things like that happened i think it was like a personal thing for her where she well she was personally embarrassed by it um and even but but even though she was embarrassed by it it did actually provide more opportunities for her because the film had so much publicity around it it was like the first time that her name got out there in kind of like a big way it's like no bad presses or all no, presses good press yeah, yeah yeah exactly so she was able to get a stage role starring as empress sissy who is an austrian empress who is renowned for her beauty as yeah. well so it was kind of like a perfect role for her but this was kind of the first time that she started receiving some good reviews about her acting because pri- previous to this people were kind of like she's so pretty and like that's kind of where it started and ended right it wasn't really about her ability Talent. as an actor but this was kind of the first time that people were like she did a really good job in this play as you can imagine Hetty had many many suitors all of whom had uh, she had turned down to focus solely on her acting career including a man named Fritz Mandel <sighs> 
Fritz Mandel was a Hungarian man who, by 1933, was known as Austria's munitions king. It's not good. He he works in armaments. Yes. In Austria. So he he would supply weapons to some not so great people. Yes. Yeah. He was pretty unscrupulous, I think. And in addition to that, not only did I feel like he, I think he probably would have sold munitions to anybody. I just think that's kind of who he was. But his, I think he became, he became more, more and more radicalized like throughout uh, this time leading up to World War II. Well, and I feel like it probably gave him a lot of power knowing that he was able to work with these people uh-huh. too oh, yes, and like yes, having yes. your name linked to theirs, even if they were perpetuating something very negative. Yes. But at the time that he met Hetty, I mean, he definitely had some, some business dealings with some not so great people. Uh, but this is in 1933. So it's before the Nazi party, like really started ramping up in a big, big way. Right. Um, and he would go on to like work with like Benito Mussolini and things like that. But I'm not sure how deeply those connections had been made right at this moment um, when he was pursuing Hetty, or if they were made, which actually now that I'm thinking about it, they probably were. It wasn't like it was super well known. I don't right. Think. It, from the the historical fiction book I read, it seems like he had a bad reputation. He was kind of a bad guy. He was seen as a little bit dangerous, but there was a little bit of an air about him. No one really knew. So See, maybe I, it but was I don't like a know reputation if that was thing. the case when he met her. Right? Do you know what I mean? Like I think that. He was kind of this like smooth talking guy. Her parents didn't really like him, but it yeah. seems like that had more to do with the fact that he was half Catholic. He was half Jewish, but he was also half Catholic and right. they didn't seem to like that very much. But he charmed them like he first of all was relentless in his pursuit of Hetty. He nagged and nagged and sent gifts. And I think eventually he wore them down and he was charming like yeah. in the beginning. So Ugh, he, he managed... I know someone like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, he's a really bad guy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so he did finally wear them down to the point where they consented to an engagement. So the two married when Hetty was 18 and Fritz was 33. Cute. Yeah, cute. And though he lavished Hetty with expensive trips and gifts, he was incredibly jealous and controlling. He demanded that Hetty quit acting and cut off all her relationships to others in the film industry. He was so infuriated by her simulated orgasm in the movie Ecstasy that he reportedly had every print bought and destroyed. Cool. Controlling much? Controlling. Um, Fritz took Hetty home to his castle home. Like, I, I Googled it, and I'm like... It's ginormous. Yeah, I Googled it because they were referring to it as a castle, and I'm like, could it really be a castle? And it's then a you fucking look at castle. it, and you're like, no, it is a castle, a castle, and it's called Schloss Schwarzenau, mm-hmm. where she was kept as a virtual prisoner. She would later say in her autobiography, I had every luxury except freedom. Mm-hmm. Fritz would go out of town for long periods, leaving Hetty in the castle without a means to travel and always deliberately kept her short on cash to better control her. Hetty began acting out during during this time in an attempt to wrestle some control back. My favorite anecdote is that she once removed all 16 toilet seats from the castle bathrooms, (laughs) painted them in bright colors and put them all out on the front lawn when she knew that Fritz had important meetings with his business partners. (laughs) He's like, he's bringing all his business partners back to the castle to do some kind of whatever they're doing. We'll have some drinks and chat. Uh And she had taken all the seats off of all the toilets and painted them bright colors and put them all over the front lawn. I would never even think of that. No, me neither. (laughs) Eventually, she found ways of escaping the house and would go into town and go on shopping sprees, buying on credit in Fritz's name. Hell yeah. Once after this happened, Fritz saw the extent of the bill and finally relented and gave Hetty an allowance. She was like, if you're not going to give me an allowance, everybody knows who you are. Everybody knows I'm your wife. And this was at a time period when you really could just go in and be like, put it on the Mandel account. Exactly. You know, whatever. Yeah. And people would just do it. <laughs> put it on the Mandel account. Is yeah. that what she sounded like, darling? Everyone sounded like that. 
Uh, still, he would secretly follow Hetty anytime she would venture into town unaccompanied, and she alleges that once, when she noticed him tailing her, she snuck into the back door of a cabaret club and found herself on stage with the actors, and instead of rushing off stage, she improvised a scene with the actor on stage who was a good sport until she could make her escape. Oh my gosh, can you imagine being that actor being like, who the fuck are you? Okay. (laughs) I guess we're doing this now. Improv. Yes. <laughs> As her marriage with Fritz Mandel progressed, her husband's politics became more and more disturbing. He sold munitions to the likes of Benito Mussolini, and despite the fact that he was half Jewish and his wife was fully Jewish, he held anti-Semitic beliefs and also began to sell weapons to the Nazis. This is obviously gross and terrifying, but one thing that did come out of it is that since Mandel was so incredibly jealous and didn't want to let Hetty out of his sight... He often took her with him to business meetings where he conferred with scientists and other professionals involved in military technology. These conferences were her introduction to the field of applied science, um, and it kind of resurrected this latent interest and talent that she had in science and engineering. So playing the charming trophy wife, she was able to engage the scientists. You know, she's, I'm just a dumb woman. So she I'm was just, able, explain I can't to understand. me how this works. Yeah, I can't right? understand what you're saying, but you can just talk and mm-hmm. I'll just sit and listen yes. and be pretty. But she was like a sponge. Like she just absorbed the information. Like anything that they told her, she already had a mind for it. So when they were talking about it, she was kind of able to just pick it up and it's like yes it sucks that she had to learn it this way but if she had to be in this incredibly abusive toxic marriage to a nazi especially as a jewish Jewish woman woman, um at least she got this out of it (laughs) she got this like a bit of an education certainly In 1936, things were starting to get truly bad for the Jewish people of Austria. It was during this year that the Austrian Association of Cinema declared a ban on Jewish performers. Hetty, who had been having an affair with a man named Ferdinand, decided it was time to flee the area. She and Ferdinand hopped a train to Hungary, but when when it reached its destination, she was surprised to find Fritz waiting for them both. (sighs) Obviously furious. I think she said, I didn't write it down, but I think she said he was gray with fury. Like when they the train doors opened and she found him there. Several months later, Hetty concocted a new scheme to try and escape her Nazi husband. She hired a new maid named Laura, who was a passing lookalike to Hetty. One day when her husband was out of town, she slipped the girl a few sleeping pills. For the record, we don't support dosing people. We do not. Um, but I do think these are extreme circumstances. Yep. <laughs> uh, she d- gave Laura a few sleeping pills and put on the woman's uniform and snuck out of the servant's store and managed to make it to a train station and escape to Paris. I mean, already she did it. She's like in her early 20s right yeah. now. This is, it's a lot. She's she a genius. has truly managed to live quite the life. After leaving Paris, she sought refuge in St. Moritz, Switzerland, which had become a popular destination for performers of Jewish descent to escape Nazi rule. There she began to resurrect her acting career, and it wasn't long before she made her way to London, where she met Louis B. Mayer, head of MGM, who just happened to be in Europe scouting talent. She initially turned down the offer that he made her, which was $125 a week, $125. Yeah. But then she clever as ever, booked herself onto the same New York-bound liner as him. So they were stuck on a cruise ship, basically, from London to New York. And so she had all of this time to, like, charm him and, like, put herself in his company. Although that sucks. I wouldn't want to spend more than 10 seconds with Louis Oh, he's a horrible person. He is the worst. Mm -hmm. He is a pervert. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I mean, he even told her, like, part of the reason why they changed her name is, one, Kessler sounded too... Jewish and then Mandel at that point was too political. People knew who he was yeah. and that he was selling munitions to um, Mussolini to and Hitler yeah. at that point. So they were like, well, we can't use that and we can't use Kistler because it sounds too Jewish. So they ended up changing her name to Lamar after Barbara Lamar, who was a 
a um, silent film actress who had recently passed away young. She had passed away at like 29. Interesting. And Louis B. Mayer's wife. That would be very eerie to take that name. Yeah. But Louis B. Mayer's wife was a big fan of hers. And so they chose to change her last name. But it was also to distance her from ecstasy. Yes. Because like you said, Louis B. Mayer was a huge pervert and told her like that won't fly in the United States. And what the direct quote was, your ass is for your husband, not for theater goers. So great. Lovely. And then he also had Judy Garland sit on his lap. Yeah, he's all the a time. And call her his little hunchback. Man. So let's go on. He's a disgusting <laughs> person. Uh, but she was able to charm him aboard that liner and managed to secure a $500 a week contract. Oh my God, what a jump. 125 to 500. Whew. But at the time, that's about 10K a week. Yeah. Yeah. So good, she was making a good amount of money. <laughs> really, really good money. As soon as they got to Hollywood in 1938, he began promoting her as the world's most beautiful woman. So there it comes again. She's had two big people in the industry, Max Reinhardt and then also Louis B. Mayer kind of promoting her as this is the world's most beautiful woman. Right. Though she was obviously stunning, she didn't speak great English and had been out of the acting game for some time, making her difficult to cast. The studio producers created an exotic femme fatale persona for Hetty, and she was soon starring in films like Algiers and Lady of the Tropics, where she received praise. Did you know that the original drawing for Snow White was blonde and... It was changed in large part because of Hedy Lamarr. Like they they used Hedy Lamarr as a template. I did know that. And Isn't I that only amazing? knew that because um I remember watching a DVD extra of Snow White where they did like the drawings uh-huh. and the things like that. And I think that's the only reason that yeah. I knew that. Because to me, it's like that image of Snow White is so iconic. And obviously they also had to rewrite the because I think that there's even dialogue in that movie about her having dark hair. So yeah. they had to rewrite that. But it's because if you look at Snow White and you look at Hedy Lamar, you can see the resemblance. Yeah. And they did kind of use her as this template yeah. for Snow White. By the mid-1940s, Hetty became frustrated that she was consistently being typecast as exotic seductresses, unfortunately, sometimes in brown face, uh, and was forced to turn down the media roles that she really wanted, most notably the role of Ilsa in Casablanca, which, of course, went to Ingrid Bergman. She was offered to her first. Yeah. When her contract finally lapsed with MGM, she began producing her own films, such as The Strange Woman in 1946, The Dishonored Lady, and the epic The Loves of Three Queens. And uh, Robert Osborne, who is a TCM host, he said, quote, I don't recall anybody except Hetty who went out and actually produced a movie. It was very unusual in 1946. The system didn't welcome it. They didn't want movie stars producing their own films, especially the women. Because the way the studio system was set up, it like now stars having say, production companies is normal. That's what you have to do. You know, and that's, like, that's how you make your own work, too, mm-hmm. is by producing your own stuff. Yeah, but so they wanted smart. to control your image in such a way. And they wanted to be able to tell people how much they got to make. Yeah. That like they didn't want you producing your own stuff. Right. While all this was going on, very few people knew that Hetty had another secret passion. Only those closest to the actress knew that she had never lost her love of engineering and inventing things. Howard Hughes knew the actress well and was impressed by her scientific knowledge and natural ability. He gifted Hetty with portable engineering equipment so that she could continue to hone her skill even when traveling for work. And so often she'd be working on her inventions in her trailer between takes. Like I she just that. had like inventions set up in her trailer. Like she was tinkering with all the It'd time. It'd be like us crocheting between mm-hmm. tanks. Yes. <laughs> As a thank you, she helped Hughes streamline his racing airplane. She's wow. like, I'll help you with it. Yeah. Oh my God, that's so cool. Yeah. Some of her other inventions included a tablet that could turn a glass of water into a cola drink, though she admitted that she couldn't ever get the taste quite right. Mm-hmm. She also invented an anti-aircraft shell with a proximity fuse, and after the U.S. entered World War II, she was determined to find a way to use her skills to help the war effort. She began working on an idea built on frequency hopping, which was a concept that was initially patented by Nikola Tesla in 1903. So I don't have an engineering mind, but let me try and explain okay. as best I can I'm going to give a big thank you to Biographics YouTube channel for helping me with this. (laughs) Hetty figured that naval torpedoes were given input for both depth, speed, and direction, but once they were launched, 
they were left completely unguided. So okay. it was just kind of like, we think it's going to go to the right place. We think we did the math right or whatever. Right. Um, wouldn't it be helpful to create a technology that could control their trajectory remotely? Uh-huh. Additionally, she had read that radio-controlled torpedoes had been proposed and was concerned that the enemy could jam a torpedo's guidance system and set it off course. So she's like, the enemy will be able to intercept if we do this um, radio-controlled torpedo thing. Right. So with the help of her friend and composer, pianist and expert in mechanical pianos, George Anthill, she devised a device similar to a piano roll that would switch between different frequencies, making it very hard for the enemy to intercept. Mm. Hetty and Anthill patented the system on August 11th, 1942, under the name Secret Communication System. Though it was still too new to be of any real use in World War II, it was fully developed by the U.S. military in 1959 as a device to control early drone models. Three years later, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, all U.S. Navy vessels were equipped with the technology. Wow. Eventually, the Lamar Anthel secret communication system would become a key component of wireless communication in general, including Wi-Fi and Bluetooth technology. Thank you, Hetty. Thank you, Hetty. <laughs> Though this invention has been estimated to be worth $30 billion in today's money, Hetty never saw a penny of it. Because the Navy did not initially use her and George's invention back in 1942, Hetty did not renew the patent application before it expired. Still, Hetty was eager to serve her new country during World War II, being Jewish herself and seeing what was happening to her home country. She volunteered to entertain the troops and even led a fundraising event that sold $25 million worth of war bonds in just 10 days. Millions back then. Yes. Big money. Unbelievable. Yes. Yeah. Lamar became a naturalized citizen of the United States at the age of 38 on April 10th, 1953. And unfortunately, the later years of Hetty's life were troubled. Mm. Hollywood is not kind to aging actresses. It no. still isn't. And by the time she was in her mid-30s, the acting roles began to dry up. She married and divorced three times and by the 1960s found herself on the brink of financial ruin, even admitting to a fan that she had no idea where her next meal was coming from. Oh, Hetty. Mm -hmm. The papers were cruel to Hetty as she aged, with one publication calling her a, quote, pathetic recluse, old and ugly. No! By the 90s, Hetty was living in a small apartment in Miami and surviving off her SAG pension and Social Security. She drew attention once again when, as an old woman at this point, she was arrested for shoplifting and sentenced to a year of probation. But, you know, like things had to be pretty desperate for her. Right. Well, and shoplifting is a very interesting crime in general. I think there, there are a lot of reasons that people do it. And I think that a lot of times people shoplift out of survival. And if she doesn't know where her next meal is coming from, that makes sense to me that that's something that you would do. Yeah. People shoplift out of survival. They also shoplift out of like having a sense of control, um, which I'm sure she felt like she didn't have at that time. Right. She also had been used to a certain kind of lifestyle yeah. as well and was known when she did have money. And part of the reason why she's broken her old age is because she liked to go on massive shopping sprees where yeah. she like bought lots of stuff, you know, and it's, it's, I think it's difficult not to make an excuse, but I do think it's difficult to trans, you know, to have that like transition yeah, in your have life. have that go away when you're mm-hmm. used to being able to buy whatever you want to not yeah. knowing how yeah. you're going to afford food. Yes. Very difficult. Yeah, yeah. Though her later life was tragic and turbulent, she never stopped inventing, coming up with a fluorescent dog collar and reinventing the traffic light <laughs> all in her home in Miami. She was just like still tinkering with things. Like, I feel just like we mentioned life. the traffic light in our women's inventor episode. That was in our um, black inventors episode. Oh, and so you're right. She, we didn't do a women's inventors episode, no. but there was something to do with the stoplight. It, yes. Yeah. Uh, a black man created the like m- our modern stoplight that we yes, use. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, but she, I don't know what her new stoplight was, but she had created something. She'd added on something to the traffic light. Lamar died in Castleberry, Florida on January 19th, 2000 of heart disease at 85 years old. Her son, Anthony Loder, spread her ashes in Austria's Vienna woods in accordance with her last wishes. A memorial was later unveiled in Vienna's central cemetery with a headstone that read, quote, 
Films have a certain place and a certain time period. Technology is forever. Ooh. Toward the end of her life in 1997, she and George Anthill were jointly honored with the Electronic Frontier Foundation's Pioneer Award. And Lamar was also the first woman to receive the Invention Convention's Bowlby Nass Spirit of Achievement Award, which is known as the Oscars of Inventing. So she was oh, wow. the first woman to receive one of those. Uh, the following year, Lamar's Native Austria awarded her with the Victor Kaplan Medal of the Austrian Association of Patent Holders and Inventors. In 2014, Lamar was posthumously inducted into the National Inventors Hall of Fame for the frequency hopping technology that she created. Google paid tribute to Lamar in a really cool doodle like it's actually like kind of a long one like if you watch it if you watch like the whole thing they did this whole thing and um there's a woman who worked at at google uh jennifer hom and she's the one who designed the doodle yeah. and she was just talking about how she lamar hetty lamar is kind of this like icon at google like she's like a rock star at google and she said Within the nerd community at Google, Hedy Lamar is a beloved figure. We love highlighting stories about women's achievements in science and technology. When the story involves a 1940s Hollywood star turned inventor who helped develop technologies we use with our smartphones today, we have to share it with the world. Ugh. And I just, I think that her story, it's so fascinating, obviously, for so many different reasons, because she was this beautiful, like iconic, you know, golden age actress but in addition to that you know she had she did all these things in her life that like I she she led this kind of her life feels like a novel like yeah. she led this kind of wild life and then on top of all of that she was so smart and she created the technology that we use every day we would be lost without it like Ugh. how often do are we using bluetooth and wi-fi yeah constantly constantly it is part it's so integral to like our daily lives now yeah. and to know that this woman who i had on my wall when i was in high school is responsible for that she's is, very surprising in that way i feel like whenever there's like a things you didn't know about celebrities yeah. is she's in all of those lists because I think we have this idea that beautiful people can't also be really smart. Right. Yeah. Or people who are really talented at one thing can't be really talented at another. And I think that Hetty kind of made us all think differently on that because yeah. she was known as the most beautiful woman in the world, but she was also so smart and so cunning and was able to do so. She lived multiple lives yes. in oh, one. Yeah. Like yeah. she was able to do so much. And I feel like you don't expect that from someone as beautiful as yeah. she is, especially it, at that time. It was that intelligence and that cleverness that allowed her to lead all these different lives, right? Right, because imagine if her cleverness had never gotten out, her out of that abusive marriage. Right, yeah. I mean, she's... She's we wouldn't so, have had the things that we did. And that was such an interesting thing, too. Like, there's a quote, and I didn't write it down, and I kind of wish I did, because there is this really heartbreaking quote, because the world was so cruel to her as she yeah. was aging, as the world is to women who age and lose their proximity to youth and they were really really cruel as she aged and even after she died they were like Hedy Lamar was addicted to plastic surgery and blah 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 and I'm like well isn't that a bit of a societal a commentary on like society of making her feel like she needed to continue to do these things I mean that's exactly it we chastise women for getting old and then when they try to do something about getting old we make fun of the way they look that right doesn't make any and sense and so she made uh, there was this quote where she said that her face has been her burden because she was so beautiful that it put her in proximity of bad people like throughout her life. And, right. you know, and I think that that is definitely the case with Fritz Mandel. He wanted a trophy. He wanted something pretty that he could put on his arm. Um, and when well, he had no idea what he was getting into with a smart woman like her either. No, like he probably he, thought she was going to be this pretty docile wife. Right. And she was not. He wouldn't have pursued her the way that he did if she hadn't looked the way she looked. And I think that for her, it was hard because it did afford her so many opportunities, but it also put her in the path of so much like heartbreak yeah, in her life. So definitely. it's an interesting comment on like beauty and, and stuff like that. But. Certainly. Well, thank you so much 
for telling that story. It's one that I'd actually thought about doing before and just never, like, I think I started it a few times and then never, like, finished all the notes for Sometimes it. Sometimes people like this, it feels a little daunting. Like, yeah. you're like, oh, God. <laughs> like, you know, because there's so many articles and stuff. Yeah, like and I think I did it after I read the book and there was so much in my head, too. Yeah. That I was trying to, like, differentiate between that. I was like, I can't do this. So thank you so much for talking about her because yeah. I, I adore her. Um, if there's anything that you would like for us to cover in the future, you can go ahead and message us at our email at neighborhoodfeminists at gmail.com or direct message us on our Instagram at Angry Neighborhood Feminist. If you want any of our merch, there's a link in the show notes. You can go to that. We have a Facebook business and group page. You can rate and review us on the business page and chat with the other listeners on the group page. And last but not least, if you haven't left us a review on Apple Podcasts, please go over to the app and do so. It means the absolute world to us. All right, that's all we have for you today. With all that being said, we encourage you to rage on. Bye. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.